The greatest question you will ever answer is this. Who is Jesus? Let me say that again. The greatest question you will ever answer is this. Who is Jesus? Who is this man that walked 2,000 years ago named Jesus of Nazareth? Or as the old scholars would say, the Jesus of history. Who is the Jesus of history? Who is the Jesus who transformed and overturned the Roman Empire within three centuries? Who is Jesus? The reason this question is so great is that your eternal destiny hangs in the balance of how you answer that question and how you respond to it. And John writes that we might have life in Him and life comes to all who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. But this is the great question. And whether you want to answer it or not, your life and your eternal destiny hangs in the balance based on how you answer it. In John's context, as he's writing some 40 years after the crucifixion of Christ. John, who is called John the Evangelist, continues to write to show people who Jesus really was. And here in these these verses that I just read to you from verse 119 to 212, we have this first week in the life of Jesus This first week in the life of Jesus, you'll notice how John kept saying the next day, the next day, the next day, on the third day. We have these seven days with Jesus. And John has compiled this opening narrative together after the prologue, the introduction to John, to show us who Jesus is. And to show us more than just what John thinks, what the early witnesses to Jesus thought about who the Jesus of history is, who he was and who he is. And we're going to explore that this morning. We're going to walk through this first week with Jesus and see who he really is. So let's begin in verse 19 of chapter 1. Day 1, day 1, verses 19 to 28 who is Jesus? And I'll, I'll answer it at the end, and we'll move through each day consecutively here. And then I'll give you a header, an answer you can fill in. Day one, what can we learn from day one? And starting in verse 19, we begin with John the Baptist, who was in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance. And he's baptizing people, calling them to repent of their sins. And the Pharisees get word of this. And the Pharisees are basically the religious people in charge. They're Sadducees as well, but the the Pharisees were known as the holy people. They were known as the the men of the law who who could tell you how you really should apply the law uh, in first century um, practice, as it were. Like things like, 
okay, if you take take a glass filled with pure water and it gets poured into a common regular cup, is this cup made unpure because the water uh, links the pure cup with the impure cup? You know, these are the kinds of things they're debating. Okay? And they were legalists in, in uh, all the worst ways. But they wanted to know, okay? So they're the people in charge. Who, who is this bloke baptizing? Who's this nobody baptizing in the desert, pro- proclaiming a baptism of repentance? And so they send some men to find out. And they ask John, who are you? Who are you? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? And who are, who are, these, who are these people? Elijah uh, was well known because it was written in Holy Scripture, in Malachi 4.5, to come before the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, the day when the Messiah would come. So all Israel is waiting for Elijah to come back. And this is interesting to me because John says no, even though later on Jesus will say he was the Elijah to come. But John says no. And then they wonder, are you the prophet? And and who's the prophet? Well, again, in Holy Scripture, in Deuteronomy 18.15, Deuteronomy 18.15, there's this prophecy that there would be this prophet to come after Moses to reveal the will of God to the people. And they're wondering, is this is this the man? Is this the prophet? And he says, no. And then they say, well, who are you then? And he quotes from Isaiah 40. And in Isaiah 40, it says, as we read in our scripture reading, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord make straight in the desert highway for our God and then he goes on to say of this one that I am preparing the way for I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals his dirty sandals so in day one what is revealed about Jesus We have two revelations. One, that Jesus is Yahweh. Yahweh. Y-H-W-H. This is the holy and personal name of God. He is the Lord. So when we read in Isaiah 40, prepare the way of the Lord. When you see in in English, I'm guessing it's probably Heron in Norwegian. Um, And I'm not sure if it's all capped in the Norwegian translations, but in English translations, when you see Lord, all caps, that means uh, in the original Hebrew, it's Yahweh, the personal name of God, which is revealed in Isaiah, uh, Exodus 3 and Exodus 30, uh, 34. Anyways, so Jesus is Yahweh. He's the God of Israel. He's the Old Testament creator God of Israel. And then secondly, he is one of whom we are not even worthy to untie his sandals. So the first thing we learn on day one, this is like your first day of class 
on day one, what do you learn? Jesus is God. And Jesus is one whom we are not even close to worthy to to untie his sandals. And this really speaks against the the flippancy or the, the easy way we can approach God at times, expecting him to meet our needs and our demands and Uh, We call him our buddy and we take him for granted. We are not even worthy to untie his sandals because he is Yahweh. He is God. So that brings us to day two. Day two in verses 29 to 34. And in day two in verse 29 and following, John, we see John's proclamation And seeing Jesus, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You know, I always wondered why in the other Gospels, why John would ask later and send his disciples to Jesus, Are you really the one? Or should we expect another? When right here, he's he's proclaiming, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But There's actually an interesting... I think an interesting explanation for what seems like kind of an irregularity or discrepancy. There is a vast amount of uh, Jewish literature circulating during what's what's known as the the silent period between the Testaments. There's 400 years of silence after the last prophet speaks before the time of Christ roughly speaking. And so there's all sorts of Jewish literature circulating around right now. People are waiting. When's the Messiah going to come and finally deliver us from all of our enemies? When will he come? And in one, uh, actually, well, I should say two, two of these documents, these are not inspired documents. They're not part of scripture, but they do help us understand the cultural and theological world in which these Jews were swimming as they're waiting for the Messiah, in a Jewish document called the Testimony of Joseph, a Testimony of Joseph, uh, chapter 19, verse 8, it says, And I saw that a virgin was born from Judah, wearing a linen stole, and from her was born a spotless lamb. From her was born a spotless lamb. And his, at his left, there was something like a lion and all the wild animals rushed against him, but the lamb conquered them and destroyed them, trampling them underfoot. And when we see John say, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world as people raised up in the gospels, we immediately think the cross. But what John was thinking, I think at this point was that the Messiah was going to come to destroy all the enemies of Israel right away. That was the great expectation of the Messiah, was that he would come and destroy their enemies. So when he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he meant not by a sacrifice, but by a sword, literally killing all of the enemies of God's people, taking away the sinners of the world. But there is also another thing circulating in the the Jewish culture at this time, too, uh, in another non-inspired 
book called Second Enoch. In Second Enoch 64.5, it says, For you will be glorified in front of the face of the Lord for eternity, because you are the one whom the Lord chose in preference to all the people upon the earth. And he appointed you to be the one who makes a written record of all his creation visible and invisible and the one who carried away the sin of mankind. So again, there is also this notion of one who would come to take away the sin of mankind. So John proclaims Jesus as this Lamb of God, and it is true that he will be the one who comes again to judge the living and the dead as we as we recite and as we can read in Revelation 19, uh, among other places. But Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then at the end of this proclamation, John also says that he is the Son of God as well. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So, so far we've seen that Jesus is Yahweh. We're not worthy to untie his sandals. Jesus is the Lamb of God, and Jesus is the Son of God. That's four things in two days that we have learned about Jesus in this opening week, this Jesus of history. Let's go to days three and four, which we find in verses 35 to 42. Here we see Jesus calling his first disciples. And in the process of, of calling them, uh, his disciples uh, leave, actually leave John the Baptist because John the Baptist again says, Behold the Lamb of God. And there are these two guys that were disciples of John the Baptist that follow after Jesus. And as the text says in verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So we have Andrew and we have Simon Peter. And so they presumably stay with Jesus on this day and learn with him because it was late in the day. And so presumably then in uh, verse 41, we have the next day, day four, when uh, he first found his own brother, as John says, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus and Jesus gives him a new name, Cephas, which is Aramaic for Peter. So in days three and four, we see Jesus both called the teacher, he's rabbi, but he's also called the Messiah, which means the Christ. And this ties into another Old Testament expectation about the one who would come from Daniel 9, verse 25. Daniel 9, 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the world to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven 
weeks. So they are expecting this anointed one to come, Daniel 9.25. So in four days we've seen that Jesus is Yahweh. We're not worthy to untie his sandals. Jesus is the Lamb of God. He's the Son of God. He's the teacher and he's the Messiah, the Christ. How about day five? Here we see Jesus given a new title. Verses 43 to 51, Jesus calls Philip and Nathaniel. And Nathaniel is, is wowed and amazed because Jesus saw, foresaw him sitting under a fig tree. And Nathaniel is blown away by this. And this is enough for him to realize that this rabbi is not any ordinary rabbi. This teacher is no ordinary teacher. And he makes a great declaration about who Jesus is. He says that he is the king of Israel. Nathaniel says he is the king of Israel. This ties back to yet another Old Testament expectation. Notice we have Old Testament expectations in each of these days linked in here. In Zechariah 9.9, the prophet Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The gospel writers all cite this text referring to Jesus coming. Nathaniel, who's probably also known as Bartholomew, um, as he's mentioned in the other gospels, declares, indeed, this is the king of Israel. Before that, Philip declared also that Jesus is the subject of Moses and the prophets. Did you notice that? What Philip says when we read, he says to Nathaniel, he says, we have found him in verse 45. We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And this picks up one of the great themes in John to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of all scriptures. That's why we can read the Old Testament and read it in light of Jesus, because he is the fulfillment of it. It is not, as, uh, as say, dispensationalists would say, somebody else's mail. The Old Testament was for someone else. The Old Testament is for us, for the church, the Jew-Gentile church that Jesus bought with his blood. And John is crystal clear that the law... And the prophets wrote about Jesus. Indeed, later he'll say to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures in vain. You search them because you think that in them you will have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. And the scriptures in that context is what we call the Old Testament today. It's the only scriptures that they had. And then at the end, in response to Nathaniel's proclamation. 
Jesus says to him, and I, 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 love, I love what, what he says in response to Nathaniel. He says, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So yet another description of who Jesus is. Jesus is the subject of Moses and the prophets. Jesus is the king of Israel. And Jesus is the son of man. And the son of man is yet another loaded phrase connected to an Old Testament expectation from Daniel 7. Daniel seven thirteen. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And here in days one to five, we essentially see, to sum it all up, every expectation of the Israelites is fulfilled in the one man, Jesus of Nazareth. Every expectation they had for the one who would come who they read the word of God and were waiting for God to make good on his promise. It's fulfilled in Jesus, this Jesus of history. But we have to finish the week. We have one last thing to look at. Day seven. And we get this last description of Jesus by way of a sign. The first of the great signs in John. The turning water into wine. And John says on the third day, and and I will say the way we understand this week is the third day is is the inclusive mode of reckoning, which is how the ancients would would count days. So for example, Jesus was crucified and he was raised on what day? On the on the third day. If we use our way of reckoning today, we'd say Friday to Saturday, Saturday to Sunday. That's two days. But in the ancient way of reckoning, Friday's day 1, Saturday's day 2, Sunday is day 3. And that's why we gather on this day that we call the Lord's day as John uh, refers to it in Revelation 1. But at any rate, so on the third day, this is day seven of this great reveal, Jesus' great reveal, we get the first of the great signs. And Jesus is invited to this party in Cana. And uh, Jewish wedding parties were elaborate. They could last as much as a week in length. They were big and they were lavish. And it was really important that you had enough food and enough wine for all the festivities. And in fact, if you ran out of food or you ran out of wine, it was a huge shame on your family and on the couple. And in in the ancient Near East, they lived in a shame-honor culture. So it was a great shame if you ran out of wine. And most scholars think this is probably a poor couple because... They run out of wine. And Mary is with Jesus, Jesus' mother. And she grew up with this guy. So she kind of, she knows who he is. 
that she had an angel speak to her and tell her who he is. And so she's like, oh, right. This, I mean, can you imagine if there's Facebook in these times? She's like, this is the time to show off my son. This is the time I can show him off. There's Facebook, she'd probably be posting. It's probably a good thing that had not been invented yet. But she's like, she's like, Jesus. She's like, son, come on, do something about this. And he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Remember, we talked in the introduction, uh, the introductory sermon, how this idea of the hour is so important. And the whole half of the Gospel of John is built on the hour of glory. So we have, we're in the signs of glory right now, and then it will be the hour of glory. But he said, my hour has not yet come. And yet still he decided to manifest his glory, didn't he? In, in this little way. And so he goes back and uh, he has the servants uh, do what he was instructed to do, to take water from these purification jars, these these six jars that were for the Jewish rites of purification for, uh, for all, so all the guests that would come would need to wash their hands with sanctified water to be, to be clean. And that's one of these rites of holiness in this intertestamental period. And Jesus turns it into wine. He turns it into wine and, and the wine's brought to the master of ceremonies, the master of the feast, probably a servant who is just the guy to make sure everything went the way, the way that it's supposed to go. Peter, I'll say that's you in our church. You'd be that guy. You're just making sure everything works for the church, right? And, um, and he goes, what? He was amazed. Where did this good wine come from? Of course, the servants do. But he didn't know. And he says... He makes this declaration at the end. He's, he's shocked. He says in 2.10, everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. Right? So they, 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 they lose their palate because they've drunk enough wine. So give them the good wine first, and then after their palate's gone, then they can, they can have the bad wine, and they won't know. All right? But he's amazed, and he, and he says... Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. And then John says, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. What can we learn here about who Jesus is? In days 1 to 5, we learn by way of, of declaration. But now we learn by way of illustration. Who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the bridegroom. And he's the one who has saved the good wine for the last. And all of the old Jewish rites of purification will be antiquated. They will no longer be necessary because the true bridegroom has come and the party has really begun and John and a reason why I think this is very clear to me that this is what John's trying to do is he caps this week together of Jesus is that John who writes the book of Revelation as well points us to the great feast 
the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper of the Lamb, where Jesus is the bridegroom and we as his church are the bride. Revelation 19, 7 and 9. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. So who is the Jesus of history? John has given us 10 descriptions in one week. 10 descriptions. One, Jesus is Yahweh. Two, we're not worthy to untie his sandals. Three, Jesus is the Lamb of God. Four, Jesus is the Son of God. Five, Jesus is the teacher. Six, Jesus is the Messiah. Seven, Jesus is the subject of Moses and the prophets. Eight, Jesus is the King of Israel. Nine, Jesus is the Son of Man. And ten, Jesus is the bridegroom. Now, Jesus' public hour of glory is yet to come in John. And yet, his disciples, when they're seeing these things he's doing, they believe. The servants saw, and they knew who did this. And John is inviting us in as those to whom the truth has been revealed. Jesus is all these things. He is the great hope, the great promise of the Old Testament. The Jesus of history is the divine Son of God. And these servants and these disciples saw the glory of Christ and they believed to their everlasting glory. But how about you? Who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say the Jesus of history really is? Well, I've given you ten answers and I hope that you Believe them as I do, because your and my eternal destiny hangs in the balance on how we answer this greatest of all questions.